Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's programme on what is a warm summer morning here in the capital is Andrew Sinclair. Andrew is the director of Ridgeway Sculpture Design, a Devon-based design studio. Um, Andrew, good morning and welcome to the programme. Good morning, Tom. Thank you. It's a real pleasure having you with us today, and it certainly is a lovely day for it. Um, I think we should begin, Andrew, by addressing the elephant in the room, and that's the fact that we are recording this podcast on the morning of the 22nd of June. So we are still living under some form of COVID-related social restrictions, and that's been the case now for the best part of the last 14 months. So looking back over that period of time by and large, all the way back to March of last year, to what extent would you say that the pandemic has affected you and your business? Well, it's been an interesting one, actually, because at the beginning of March last year, we had five commissions, possible commissions lined up, which were very good, usually in um, our line of business. Um, that, that, that is considered to be extremely good. Um, COVID uh, really put pay to all of those. So from, a, from a, uh, an ongoing business point of view, we were in trouble at that period. Um, and also, I run um, the sculpture school uh, with my partner, Diane. And, of course, uh, we couldn't have students in at all. So, so the sculpture school was, uh, was quietly wrapped up. Um, so the loans and the grants that we've received um, over that period have really made a massive difference. I, I, I can definitely say without a shadow of a doubt that we would not have survived without them. Yes, a lot has been made, hasn't it, of how the government has issued, in particular, guidance over the course of the last 14 months. But one thing that's proved such a huge help to businesses are those support measures that have been brought in. You talk about, of course, the uh, the loans, the grants. Um, that is something that I think we certainly can credit leadership in this country for, isn't it? The way they've acted swiftly to sort of keep industry running during this time. It's been incredible. Um, the, generosity, the generosity of it and, and the... It was just the right thing to do at the right time. And uh, for that, I think we'll be forever grateful. Um, we were intending on, uh, when we still are intending on, writing a letter of thank you because uh, not only did the grant help us to, to survive, but the loans, which are the bounce back loan, which I think was a very important aspect of, of the help that we received, enabled me to um, invest in the business in a way that I've never been able to, to do before. And oddly, because of the way certainly the school works, we have students coming in from outside who um, made it impossible to, to, to run the, the business safely. Um, the designs and the new equipment that we have been planning to get for years in actual fact became an essential part of the business moving forward. 
Mm. And now we have probably um, I would I would I would say that we've we've created one of the most advanced sculpture studios that you could possibly imagine. So all of that has been created by the help that we've received directly. And are you able to sort of operate the sculpture studio sort of to its maximum with social distancing currently in place? Or is there going to be a further advantage when July the 19th does come along and hopefully all of those restrictions are then gone? It's um, it's an interesting one. Luckily, we have a huge space here, so social distancing has been no problem. Mm. Um, we've been very strict with the with the uh, masks and the rules, and 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 had a very very um, encompassing cleaning program. So, which has had a big impact on us. Actually, we've had to employ other people to help us um, just keep everything to the standard that's, that's required, so that we we can ensure safety for our students. Um, but that will obviously uh, in the next month when things clear up and we start to get back to normal we'll be hugely relieved but at the same time in a much better place than we were this time uh, last year certainly in March last year and just with regard to the students themselves, I think it's important to touch on that because we have seen a lot of sort of heightened anxiety during the uh, the pandemic for certain and much more consideration toward mental health and well-being. So has their sort of enthusiasm to come in and learn their trade been dampened at all by the pandemic and by safety concerns or has that always been there and they've always still tended to want to come in? That's an interesting question, actually, because uh, I teach what I practice in my studio. I'm a working sculptor who wants to share everything that we do here with the next generation. And um, to me, it's a practical um, uh, way of teaching. But to the students, it's become something of a retreat, really, almost something quite spiritual. And I think that is part of uh, that creative uh, energy that's in you know in people that that love art and love making things, and I think that COVID has actually heightened that um, awareness because there's a sense of gratitude and also a sense of relief from students that they can actually talk to each other and they are they're in that zone really where they're they're totally and utterly absorbed in what they're doing, fascinated by the process. And um, forget about forget about COVID, forget about the phone, forget about everything else. And we had noticed that before. It was an unexpected aspect of the business. But um, I think it's become a much stronger aspect of the business now. And looking back over this sort of last 14 months by and large and thinking of the experience you've had adapting to this whole new reality, would you say that you've perhaps come away from this whole pandemic experience having learned something for the struggles you've undergone? Uh, most definitely. Uh, from a personal point of view, um, you know, everybody looks at a sculptor and thinks, well, what an amazing lifestyle. Um, how lovely to be creating things all the time. But the reality is that it is a, it's a, it's a business like any other businesses, and it's, uh, there's deadlines to meet, there's stresses and strains, there's staff to look after all the aspects of an ordinary business apply to us in the same way 
And what I found during this this, this break is that um, maybe I don't need to work quite so manically uh, as as we have done. The days, the weeks are very long weeks here, and um, what I've done to fill the time during that period is create new designs for the new commissions that uh, that were, you know, a long term project rather than something in the short term, but also created a the space that we've got here into a beautiful gallery and a beautiful school that is dedicated to inspiring people. I think if you want to keep something like this, inspiration is the key to that. If people have that wow factor when they walk in, you're going to bring out their talent in the best possible way. And uh, I think the COVID uh, restrictions and the restrictions that we've personally been under have altered our, the way that we look at things and also made us appreciate more what we've actually got and what also what we're giving. It's interesting that you mentioned those issues there, Andrew, because within the Leaders' Council at the moment, we've been talking an awful lot about CEO and business executive burnout. So it is important that there is some level of work-life balance within business leaders. So it's good that that is something that you have been focusing on, occupying your time in a productive and sort of non-exhaustive way. And then also with um, the pupils as well, with the work you're doing, you mentioned the word inspiration there. When you are sort of sucked into survival mode during a crisis like this and you're having to sort of manage quite a delicate situation, where is it that you source your inspiration from as a business leader, do you think? Um. <clears throat> It's an interesting question. That it's. It, uh, um, I. I think certainly. Um, I look at other artists' work. I look at people in different disciplines, like photography, for example, and painting. And what I'm looking for, I think, in terms of my personal inspiration, is looking for people that are better than I am. I think it's it's something that lifts your game. There's two things that happen when you find somebody that is better than you are. One is despair, and then the other one is, right, well, if that's the case, then I'm going to have to lift my game. And I think that it, it, that's a very important part of being creative, is that you're constantly challenging yourself and you're constantly looking to the future in terms of what you are going to create and how you're going to do it. And I think that that um, relationship with other other artists in terms of what they're doing, what they're creating, what they're seeing, bleeds into your creative soul, if you see what I mean, and then comes out in its own mm. unique way. And I think I think that's where in, my inspiration comes from. Certainly, it's certainly not a, an easy thing to describe, but mm. um, it's certainly what I how I feel that things are um, perpetuated here. Yes, I do see where you're coming from there, Andrew. And it is an interesting question because I suppose when we're running our organizations, our businesses, we are the ones that people might look to for inspiration. But it is always interesting to gauge when you are a leader where your own inspiration comes from. And now just touching on the future before we do wrap things up, because I'm conscious that we're starting to run short of time on the program today. 
Um, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know, of course, for certain whether Freedom Day, the new Freedom Day on the 19th of July is set to go ahead. Um, but in an ideal world, as we hopefully move out of social restrictions, where do you see your business going, Ridgeway Sculpture Design, over the next 12 months, Andrew? And where do you ideally want to be by this time in 2022? Um, I'm feeling. Well, both my partner, Diane, and myself are feeling very, very positive. I think our staff are as well, which is really important. I think uh, during that COVID period, we've become closer, really. Um, I'm, I'm feeling very positive about the future. We have two major commissions still in the offing um, that are they're sort of stuck at the moment, but I don't think that's really very much of a problem. They're stuck because of the, of the situation that we're in. And the school... Um, although we're going to struggle this year, there is absolutely no doubt about it because rather uh, kindly all our students deferred their, their courses. So we didn't have to pay anybody back. But one or two we did because of the situation that they were in. But um, we've, we've deferred our students. And that was a wonderful thing for them to do and a wonderful thing for us to be able to offer. But now, of course, um, most of this year we won't get any money for the courses or very little because we need new students in order to generate that. So I think the rest of this year will will be a sparse year as far as income is concerned. But um, having said that, I think I look at what we've achieved during this lockdown and um, feel a sense of excitement really about the future. I think that we, we're set up in a way that we never were before. We're able to uh, start branching out into um, creating videos and online teaching courses so we can reach out across the world uh, to teach students anywhere, really. And all of that has come about, A, because of the help that we've received from the government, but B, also because we had time to stop and reflect and and get away from the usual routine and do something new, exciting and uh, innovative. It is an exciting time, isn't it, within this industry as we harness technology and help it make more of a key role in our day-to-day lives as it were and help sort of advance education further make it more accessible all over the world so very interesting times ahead indeed and Andrew I do wish you all the luck in the world in sort of implementing that and hopefully branching out even further and I think as we start to understand just exactly what sort of shape the post-COVID world is taking, it would be a real pleasure for me to welcome you back onto the programme with us and just reassess where we are at that point in time. Because, like I say, there are still a great many variables in this and it would be interesting to just reassess later on down the line. Well, thank you very much, Doris. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I've thoroughly enjoyed it as well, Andrew. I've really uh, relished having you on the programme with us today. And I'm sure the listeners also share that sentiment. And most importantly as well, since we're not quite out of the woods with the COVID situation yet, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all that's still going on. And I'm confident that better days are ahead of us. Thank you very much. And the same to you too. 
I would also extend that to all of the listeners tuning into the programme today as well. Please do continue to look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it does make such a difference in saving lives. It was, of course, a pleasure for me to welcome Andrew Sinclair, Director of Ridgeway Sculpture Design, onto the programme today. And coming up next on the programme, we'll be keeping it very much educational by welcoming Chairman of the Leaders' Council, the former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, onto the programme. He'll be discussing his take on the events of the last 14 months and his hopes for the weeks ahead. That will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and, uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more 
creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, 
they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because 
Mm-hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, Mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging, I, I think it would. people criticise the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, these kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm-hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will 
make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged? I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of 
low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it, it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual, unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond 
Labour members that has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one key key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakira Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset 
Andy has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the leaders' council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank really you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.